Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm really pleased to say that joining us now from London is Robin Niblett. He has served as the director of Chatham House for the last decade, and he joins us from London, from Brussels, actually. And he was formerly the uh, executive vice president and chief operating officer of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in uh, Washington, D.C. Robin Niblett, always great to get your insight on all things foreign policy and on this particular issue. Is this uh, President Trump's Nixon goes to China moment? <laughs> Well, um, we don't know where he's going to yet, um, which is a problem. And I don't think uh, the situation between the United States and uh, North Korea bears any real resemblance to the situation between the United States and China, either that period or before, not least given the fact that China, even then, was emerging as a potential balancer in world order. This is much more a case of having to deal with a very specific threat to regional and U.S. security. So I think that the scope for the kind of grand bargain sort of deal that Nixon goes to China implies is not available for this much more specific tactical problem. Robin, as the Chinese um, wake up to that news earlier on today, what is President Xi? What do you think he's thinking of this, the prospect of this meeting happening? Well, I think you think it's good. Um, good in the sense that the Chinese-North Korean relationship is uh, uh, very scratchy, very difficult, and the Chinese are increasingly exasperated with the steps taken by Kim Jong-un. Uh, anything that delays a further increase in tensions, which I think people expected to happen after the Olympics. Many people thought the Olympics would be a lull, and then that uh, Kim Jong-un would go back to testing the next set of missiles. So the fact that they're actually they're building on the, uh, uh, the moment of detente that those Winter Olympics brought, I think from the Chinese perspective, is seen as very positive. It also means that the sanctions are probably working a bit, or certainly you could argue that this might be partly driven by the sanctions, and the Chinese certainly didn't want to go any further than they've gone so far. So they can show a bit of progress. Robin, to what extent will the Chinese be worried about North Korea falling into the American orbit? Not at all, in my opinion. <laughs> Seriously. Um, I mean, they're, they're not even fully in the Chinese orbit. Um, as we discovered even during the Cold War, small countries are sometimes able to manipulate big ones. Um, and North Korea has done a very good job manipulating everyone so far. Um, I don't think uh, uh, that they're right. concerned about them falling into America's lap. Uh, Robin, to borrow from Professor Nye uh, in his classic textbook with Mr. Kane. Uh, power in interdependence. What is the president's power here? And what is the president's interdependence with the Washington mm. foreign policy establishment? I don't pretend to mm. see any. Is there any? Well, his power, um, I think, comes simply from the fact that he is the government and he represents the government that the North Koreans have always wanted to do the deal with. Agreed. They don't want to do the deal with China. They don't want to do the deal with South Korea. They want to do the deal with the U.S. Second bit of power that he has in the end is that a meeting with the president of the U.S. is a huge thing to give to the leader of North Korea. What do we get? Um, what do we? But Robin, this is critical. Uh, exactly. But Robin, Max Boot brought this up in the Wall Street Journal today. I get that. I get the photo op. I get the handshakes. Blah blah blah. What do we get in return for his legitimacy? 
I tell you that this is what worries me about it. You ask me what the power the U.S. has. It has the visit of the president. We seem to be giving the power that one of the key giveaways right now without any sense of what will come uh, in return. Um, the, the North Koreans, remember, you know, claim that they've given up their plutonium enrichment plan uh, about 10 years ago to turn out that they had a secret uranium plan, um, uh, enrichment plan going on alongside. So I'm, I'm concerned, I have to say, that uh, the president is stepping forward potentially too early, where more traditional, uh, cautious steps forward um, would have been a better early step in this process, such as, for example, uh, not con- you know, holding off on some of the U.S. military exercises for a period. Um, yeah. So in terms of using the power, I think the U.S. has brought out the big gun before you know what you're going to get in return for it. To what extent, Robin, just sort of extrapolating this and broadening it out a little bit, to what extent should we worry that to really validate yourself in the eyes of the United States... You need nuclear weapons, and if you build them quick enough, you get a meeting with the president. Uh, You know, it's not only that. It's the sense that, uh, uh, you know, a country with nuclear weapons is one that I think uh, the North Korean regime, Kim Jong-un and his predecessors, his father and grandfather, all believe they needed to follow the China model. China in the 1950s was deeply threatened both by the United States and at that point by the Soviet Union. They acquired a nuclear capability, and then on the back of that, they were able to develop their economy. I think Kim Jong-un is trying to follow precisely the same model, which is why I'm highly skeptical that he really is committed to denuclearization. Um, uh, He has watched what's happened, uh, uh, what happened to Iraq. Uh, He watched what happened to Libya. Um, uh, You know, his lesson, and even if you were to do a deal with the U.S., even if you were to do a deal with the U.S., look what's happened to Iran, um, which seems to have done a deal with the U.S., and then you discover the United States can't follow through on it. The the, the lack of of trust, you know, in successive administrations is a huge problem. So my read of this at the moment is, uh, you know, both sides want to show that they're reducing tensions. Neither side has worked out how to turn this into a real deal. Robin Niblett joining us from Brussels, the director of Chatham House. We always appreciate your insights, sir. Thank you very much. What a crazy, crazy week this has been, Tom Keane. Do you remember um, that time Gary Cohn left the White House? Do you remember when he resigned? It's ancient history. It feels like a long time ago. John, it really speaks to the news cycle and uh, the ad hoc nature of policymaking. I want to you know, step lightly here, folks, because... Everybody has different politics and different political opinions. But yeah. I, I think, Kevin, we need to say thank you to our team and to our Washington team. We're trying to piece all this together. Shout out uh, particularly to Margaret Talev of our White House uh, team for her work. Joining us now on Jobs Day, and I know John wants to get to Jobs Day, is Michelle Meyer of Bank of America Merrill Lynch. And what's important about Michelle Meyer, for those that keep score, is brilliant housing micro-study of eight, nine, ten years ago. She was way out front with the housing recovery and its nuances in America. So forget about Jobs Day, Michelle. Give us an update as how Michelle Meyer sees the American housing economy before we dive into jobs. Sure, and thanks for that, Tom. 
Um, so I think for, for housing, the recovery is ongoing. We have um, real clear evidence that um, demand is still improving. And one of the things that's been actually particularly encouraging to us is that we're seeing evidence of entry-level home buyers returning into the market. Um, so if you look at the homeownership rates broken down by age cohort, uh, the aging millennial is now starting to shift from the renting market to the mm-hmm. owning market. Um, and that's a really good sign because that shows first-time home buyers into right. the market, incremental demand. Now, it does mean it's further working down the supply of homes, which could continue to put some upward pressure on home prices, which is a phenomenon we've seen now for the past several years as the recovery uh, persists. You know, Michelle, one more question on housing, and I know Jen wants to beat you over the head on jobs, but this, <laughs> this was a chart one weekend, two weekends, I can't remember, three weekends ago, Dean Baker, the great liberal economist, and Dean Baker said, look, here's inflation, and here's inflation without shelter. Has Michelle Meyer taken into account our inflation Xing out Idiot city pricing like San Francisco, (laughs) New York, Boston, Washington, and the rest. Have you done the homework of taking out the housing boom of those cities and folding it into inflation? Yep. So if you look at core CPI or even core services inflation X shelter, it's much more muted. Um, so the shelter component, particularly it's called owner's equivalent rent, which is a proxy for housing costs, um, has accelerated faster than other aspects of underlying inflation. Um, and I think that that reflects the fact that we've had this uh, very tight market uh, and, and one where uh, you know, people have had to allocate more of their, their, their income income towards renting and, and even towards homeownership as well. Um, so if you look at valuation metrics, housing versus income growth, for example, um, home prices have been picking up uh, relative to the pace of income. Now, we're still far from the bubble level period, um, but certainly uh, things have, have moved up. And if you look at certain key markets, like as you point out, part of the West Coast, San Francisco, for example, prices in San Francisco are above the bubble peak and they are notably above the bubble peak. <laughs> Can we do payrolls now? Yes, yeah, I'm ready. Can. I just want to get that housing update. All right, are you are you going into real estate a little bit? I'm just trying to work. No, out I think the... I do. John, seriously, I do think they're linked. I, I think I, the housing I, economy and job oomph and wage growth is linked. I, I think you're right. I was just joking, Michelle. Let's talk about payrolls. What are you looking? It's for? It's a non-joking what, Friday. What, what, what are you We're li- deadly serious <laughs> this Friday. What are you looking for today? Help me. <laughs> sure. Um, so to me, you know, when, with payrolls, we always talk about non-farm payroll growth as, as a headline measure, which matters. And, and But I think actually markets um, and economists broadly are going to be a bit more focused on the wage data because that's where, and it goes back to you know how you think about home prices and inflation, that's where there's been a bit of a missing link in terms of whether or not we're truly seeing a move up in wage inflation. Last month gave us some indication of that, certainly with the 2.9% average hourly earnings. This month we think it's going to be a little bit softer. So we're looking for a 0.2% month or month increase. And that actually does push the year-over-year rate down a tenth to 2.8%. So it's not problematic. It's not a sign that, you know, wages are going to be stuck at low levels. But it does remind everyone that this is a slow process. It's going to be a gradual and probably bumpy trend up for for wages. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you, Michelle. Historically, when unemployment gets as low as it has done, we're about to test 4% possibly today. Mm. When it gets that low, Does wage growth start to accelerate quickly in the preceding months, or is this a slow grind higher as wage growth dips a little bit lower and grinds lower? 
Well, that's one of the questions around the Phillips curve. So in theory, the standard Phillips curve, which is the relationship between unemployment slack and, 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 and wage growth or, or, or CPI or inflation, um, standard, typically you would think that um, there's not necessarily an asymmetry that, you know, as the unemployment rate falls, you continue to incrementally boost inflation. Once it reaches NARU, um, you know, you get, you get that much more um, pressure because you're at a higher level for wages. Now, the question is, you know, is there some sort of nonlinearity or asymmetry where you fall below NARO, and the deeper you fall below NARO, the more that response actually starts to matter in terms of price pressures building. And that's possible. And that's something that Fed officials, I think, are a bit concerned about. We've heard a number of Fed officials talk about this idea that we don't really know what's going to happen when the unemployment rate falls significantly further, and we don't want to be caught too much behind the curve where all of a sudden we actually see an abrupt move up in these price pressures where the Fed would have to respond quickly and, and maybe yeah. in a way that would be disturbing for the economy. Michelle, just to broaden this out, just to broader price pressures full stop in the American economy at the moment, is there a seasonality to all of this? It just feels like that at every spring of a any given year, reflation forces pick up and then they roll over again into year end. Um, what is that about? Well, there is. There's so much seasonality in the economic data, as we know, um, both on the real side of the economy and the inflation side. For inflation, there there is a seasonal bias in the January numbers. So we ever, we start out the year with very strong inflation prints. Um, January core CPI, core PCE tend to come in um, pretty, you know, notably stronger than the trend for the rest of the month. So that kicks off this optimism around the idea that we can see higher inflation, and then it reverses or softens into the rest of the year. And around wages, you know, this this year in particular, you've had a number of kind of special factors. So we had the one-off bonus payments um, that presumably influenced the employment cost index, not the average hourly earnings numbers, but, but other wage measures. Um, and then there's the question around how quickly or how impactful the tax legislation will be in terms of also generating wage pressures. And that's kind of this headline risk that I think a lot of people are trying to yeah. understand. I mean, Carl Riccadani had a great observation uh, today. Uh, Michelle, it's only his, it's, it's his March observation. <laughs> that, that, like weather really gets into this. Like a school teacher yeah. in Buffalo, New York, if they are out two snow days, which is common, that changes the 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 hours ratios doesn't it for sure and that we think was a big factor last month so um you know the 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 work week in january was down sharply because we had some pretty unfortunate weather in the beginning of the month um so people were unable to report to work the work week was down average hourly earnings just the math (laughs) would that you know decline the work week your average early earnings are going up, yeah. all else equal. So um, this month, we think that's, that's, that's the key reason we expect the softening in wage growth this month is because the work week will pick up in February. You didn't have the same type of weather events, and as yeah. a result, you will see some payback in the wage data. Michelle, thank you so much. Michelle Meyer on housing on jobs with Bank of America at Merrill Lynch. John, I think you're dead on And what I would say as a fossil. I really don't recall the seasonality decades ago yeah and i've seen some studies that say i'm wrong it's always been it there. certainly influences markets and and the bias of some market participants we weren't as, as well. focused then as we are now I, I can tell you i'm looking for some property for you between um park and madison on 76 which i know is very close to um a bar of yours which um would give you your beverage what, of choice you just walk across ken, the road is the late great ken pruitt you would just, say does it have a, a wbf a wood burning stove or whatever he used be, to say you'd be wood right next fireplace? door to the carlisle there well, that would be true. You know, 
between you Park know, and Madison on 76 um, well, will get you some options. The, it expands my options. There's yeah. no question and about it. And we'll get Michelle Marta I don't even want to know what the tariff is on this place. <laughs> Let me tell you. you got to be a real friend um, with some real money. Good to talk to uh, Michelle Meyer about America's housing economy. I would respectfully suggest very different from New York's housing economy. Bloomberg Radio, a former Fed governor just walks past the studio and walks in and he joins us about well, 10 is, minutes away but, from Cairo. Well, I'm glad you bring it up, John. <laughs> Folks, you go, why are we at Bloomberg? Why are we doing Bloomberg surveillance? And this is it. We had Alan Kruger with us uh, earlier and other wonderful economists and have a former Federal Reserve System governor, Randall Crosner of Chicago, truly the nation's expert on financial economics as well. Uh, what's the rate of change of the IS curve? I mean, we've got the impulse of tax cut. We've got the impulse of fiscal stimulus, numbers you can't imagine. If you take the classic 1939 Hicksian model, what's the shiftiness of the real economy right now? Do you have a even a, a handle on that? Well, it's hard to know the exact number, but um, I think, uh, as you said, there are a lot of things that are going well for the economy. We've got very strong global global growth. It's rare to have this kind of synchronized global growth, so that's good overall. We've got um, very solid uh, basic economic growth for the last year that seems to be um, uh, speeding up, perhaps, because of um, the uh, tax reforms and some of the regulatory reforms. So that's all helping to increase demand. The key thing is how much is it going to help on the supply side? Is it going to help to increase productivity? That's the key thing that the Fed is going to be concerned about. Do they have the luxury of waiting to find out? Well, um, we'll have to see. Obviously, we're going to see uh, some numbers uh, in just a few minutes about uh, the uh, job market and uh, wage pressure. But they're going to have. They're obviously going to be making forecasts about how much of this is actually going to help on investment, how much this is going to help on the productivity side. Yeah. Because if you get lots of fundamental growth on the productivity side, the Fed doesn't have to try to raise rates as much because it's not as inflationary. But I guess you've got to wait and wait and see, and then wait a several more months, and then you may find yourself behind the curve. So the big question, I think, the Federal Reserve probably has the hardest job it's has for a long, long time now, Professor. What's the prudent monetary policy response to all of this? Do you get ahead with four? Do you sit back and do two? Or do you go with three? <laughs> well, you know, the Fed always likes to take the uh, the balanced view, so probably three is the reasonable one at the moment. But, it, you know, it'll depend on how uh, the data are starting to evolve. I mean, the Fed has tried to stay ahead of the curve because obviously the Fed's been raising rates and has raised rates reasonably significantly, even though in the inflation rate has been below its 2% target. That suggests that it's trying to be ahead of the curve. That gives it a little bit of flexibility yeah. to sort of wait and see. Your colleague in crime at Chicago, Mr. Levitt, I, I'm honored to say I did his first interview of Freakonomics years ago. He finishes up that hugely successful tome with two paths to Harvard. On many, many years from Freakonomics, everybody's linking education back into our labor economy. People are bored with what economists say. We all know we need more <laughs> education. What's the Krosner immediate application to jumpstart education in America, whether it's two, three, or four paths to Harvard. 
So I agree that um, people are tired of hearing about education. Unfortunately, it is true that that's one of the most important things is to try to improve the skill set and make sure you've got the right skill match between what the economy is going to be uh, rewarding and needing and yeah. what, uh, what people have. Uh, I think uh, doing some reforms at the um, uh, at the grammar school and high school level are crucial, and that is getting a lot more technical education in there quickly. Right. I need a word. Twenty seconds. Richard Claret, a vice chairman of the Fed. I think it's a great and beautiful thing because he's really got humility about the certitude of the models. So Rich is an old friend. I've worked with him um, when I was a graduate student at the Council of Economic Advisors, and uh, he was a uh, senior economist, known him for a very long time, I think a sensible, balanced person. Very good. Randall Crosner, thank you so much uh, here just before the jobs report. Is this cool, John? It's very cool. You know, I mean, prof- you know it's like Professor in London when was Mervin- literally upstairs just having a coffee, um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and we put him into the studio and yell, it's payrolls Friday. It's like in London when Mervyn King you know, just wanders in. I mean, that it's, it's very and we, cool. And we put Something the mic special. on them and tell them, go, go, go. William Gross joining us from Janice Henderson today. Thrilled to have him with us for this entire uh, half hour. Bill, uh, in the mix of things we can talk about is the great gross observation of years ago of financial repression. Boy, is my mailbox heated up with a lot of mail from older individuals saying we just don't see it ending. When does the real the, the nominal rate lift? And can it lift without a lifted inflation that flattens or destroys savings, real income or real return, which continues the financial repression forever? Well, good, 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 good question. Uh, you know, I think financial repression, if we go back in history, the, the big financial uh, repressive cycle uh, was from the 40s to, I guess, the the Volcker era in 1979, when all of a sudden real rates uh, went positive as opposed to negative. But it took a long time to to get out of that uh, period in which uh, really reflected a, a high level of debt and the uh, willingness to lower that debt by repressing savers, not just uh, small savers, but repressing financial institutions like pension funds and insurance companies and the like. So uh, what's really happened here? Tom, over the past six or seven years has been uh, financial repression that somebody pays the price. The small saver pays the price because they don't earn um, what they used to earn relative to inflation, in this case, uh, perhaps inflation or something less, and they can't um, maintain their uh, their goals going forward. They can't pay for education. They can't pay for retirement, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And it's the same thing with pension funds and insurance companies. They can't make their 7 to 8% target uh, return on assets because bonds are only returning you know two three and four uh, percent if you're in the high yield category so yeah financial repression is a key for finan- uh, for re- global recovery for economic right. recovery but certainly not a key for the saver but the distinction of this bill is when we went up to mr volcker and frankly up to 86 reagan we did it with an encumbered debt that was so smaller than it is now. We're doing financial, we're doing financial repression with fewer degrees of freedom within what we can do about it. 
What's the gross prescription to get us to a better real return on our savings? Well, that's, again, such a perfect observation. Um, you know, we have, we have a lot of debt. Uh, you know, we can look at it from the standpoint of the government debt to GDP, and it's approaching 100%. We can look at it from the standpoint of corporations, and we can look at it from the standpoint of the total debt, about 260% of GDP. It's much different than it was in the 40s and the 50s, and so central banks, especially the Fed, have to be careful in terms of raising the rates. They know what happened in 2005 and 2006 when they went to five and a quarter. The Great Recession happened, and so they're being very, very cautious, um, and in the process, as you suggest, you know, financially repressing savers. So, what's the what's the formula? What's the secret? Well, uh, you know, the easy one is to to say that the secret is higher productivity. How do you get higher productivity? Yeah. Do you get with uh, tax cuts? I don't think so necessarily. You get it obviously though with corporate investment, and that's what we need to see in order to maintain real growth and uh, offer savers a higher real rate of return in the process. I mean, I mean, within this bill is is the fiscal response that we've seen. I'm sure you're appalled with it, like 99.9 percent of everyone else I speak with. We've got the tariff uh, debate of the last number of days over Lake Korea, which I don't think Bill Gross is uh, going to give us a strong opinion on. But the fact is, within the jumble and cacophony now that you see, how are you investing unconstrained? Well, I'm, I'm short bonds. Uh, you know, unconstrained means that you don't have to follow an index, and actually the index is a three-month LIBOR index, which is short, short, short. But So my duration is about uh, two or three years negative. It's doing well at the moment as bonds sell off. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that's going to be the case going forward. Um, you mentioned the fiscal situation. Uh, a trillion dollar deficit is, you know, perhaps $500 billion more in terms of net financing for the U.S. Treasury than uh, we've seen over the past 12 or 24 months. And uh, we know that quantitative easing is going the other way as well as the Fed takes out 10, 20, 30 billion dollars a month. And so that, in addition to the global situation with the ECB, which is moving mildly in the same direction, yeah. Um, you know, suggest that bonds are on the defensive, but I, I still don't think that three percent, three and a half or four percent is where we're going, because uh, central banks, as I've mentioned, are very, very cautious in terms of recreating a great recessionary well, environment. We've got the dual mandate, I guess, right in the crosshairs this morning here. Which does Chairman Powell focus on? Does he focus on terrific unit job growth? And frankly, folks, a lot of underlying data confirming that, including median duration coming in on unemployment. Okay, fine. Or does he focus on a tepid wage growth? He can't do both, can he? No, he can't. Uh, and today's uh, numbers uh, suggest a conundrum for him in terms of one or the other. I, when this number first came out five minutes ago, I wondered what the market would do. Would they react to strong uh, employment numbers or w would they react to the lower wages? It was a tug of war for about 30 seconds. And now, uh, at the moment at least, there appears to be a sell-off. So the market uh, believes that Powell may focus on the jobs growth, and that means, if true, that means three or four hikes as opposed to one, two, or three. I'm, I, again, I'm still of the uh, persuasion of uh, two or perhaps three hikes at best, and uh, so the 10 years well positioned, but we're at 289.9 at the moment. 
I, I look, uh, and again, folks, we're thrilled that Bill Gross is with us for an extended time here uh, today. Thrilled to bring this to you commercial-free uh, this morning. Uh, uh, Bill Gross, I look at the challenges of investment, and I would say pros are in short. They're in short maturities, and so many of our listeners are just desperate for yield, so they take the risk of going out longer maturity. What's the best way to go out in maturity? Is it full faith in credit paper, or do you got to get more esoteric with some country I can't pronounce and go for a high emerging market yield? Well, the the quick answer is to to refute your uh, the basis of your question is to not go longer in maturity, but some investors do and pension funds do, don't they? Yeah. In order to match their liabilities, and so what would a what would a pension fund do? I I, I would say that the the best way to go in terms of longer maturity is the the U.S. Treasury, the long bond at uh, three seventeen. You know, compared to Germany, compared to the U.K., compared to certainly Japan, uh, and the credit is full faith um, without the risk of widening spread. So a pension fund and, I guess, a small saver, if they want to take the durational risk, I wouldn't. I'm, an, I'm the other way, but would, would right. probably go to the U.S. Treasury market at 317. One final question this morning, Bill goes, please tell me you don't use those dumb stamps that say any price, right. you know, pr- whatever they say. Forever. You know, forever. Forever stamps. Bill, uh, Bill Gross with a uh, with the U.S. Postage Office forever stamp is un-American. Do you use those, Bill Gross? Uh. I wouldn't even know how to buy them. Uh, actually, there's a post office down the street, but I don't know. <laughs> I just sort of hand it over and, and do it electronically. I don't know the last time I used a stamp. Well, very good. Bill Gross, <laughs> congratulations on your charity to the nation for good causes. And, of course, uh, you know he, he's too modest, folks. It is the definitive stamp collection uh, in the world today. William Gross is with Janice Henderson, where sometimes we talk about jobs in the bond market as well. One of the great joys of Chicago is an exceptionally eclectic heritage and faculty. This goes back to Frank Knight many a century ago almost. Uh, I can't believe I'm saying that. Or to Professor Friedman or, of course, the wonderful Gary Becker. And it is a statement on Chicago to have Randall Krosner with us earlier and now joining us somebody Totally different than the former governor of the Fed, Austin Goolsby, uh, joins us from the Booth School of Chicago and, of course, his public service uh, with President Obama uh, at the Fed. Uh, Professor Goolsby, wonderful to have you with us today. If you were over a, a coffee of your choice at Milton Academy and an eager student stood up and said, Mr. Goolsby, alumni, what's the difference between you and Randall Krosner? How would you answer that question? <laughs> well... He's better looking than I am, for sure. Well, we know that. But other than that, what's the difference between the financial economics of Krosner and a much more holistic approach of a guy like Goolsby? Well, um, Randy's a good friend of mine. His office is uh, right down the hall. He's a, he's a Republican. I'd say we agree on a lot of things. Uh, you know, mo- most economists on both sides of the aisle have have mostly agreement on on uh, on economic things we probably disagree most on fiscal policy taxes and and some stuff like that uh but a lot of times we we find 
when we do, he and I do some economic outlook kind of events together for mm-hmm. the booth school. And uh, on monetary policy, a lot of times we we uh, we find we agree. He has a little more international well, finance focus than I do. Let's vamp off that to the idea of tax cuts and to fiscal stimulus. I'm beginning to see new numbers uh, of verbal of 1.4, 1.5 trillion as well. Is the good jobs report today and the three months moving average? Is that an expectation of fiscal stimulus, or do we got to get used to four hundred and five hundred thousand dollar, five hundred thousand unit non farm payrolls when all of this stuff clicks in? <laughs> uh, look, it's a good question. This was an excellent number, and we should be, uh, we, we should all be quite happy. I think it's also interesting that the wage growth is there, but it's come down a bit from what it was last month. So maybe people won't be as nervous that there's the imminent danger of immediate inflation, let's say. Um, I personally don't think that the jobs numbers are going to get up into this four and 500,000 kind of range because I don't think that the st- the economic stimulus of the tax cut is as big as uh, as maybe the optimists think. The on the corporate side, whether that would lead to a significant stimulus hinges critically on this question of well, what are companies going to do with the money, and if they don't primarily use the money for capital investment and instead more of the money goes out in dividends or share buybacks or mergers and acquisitions, then I think the stimulus impact will be lessened. And I think the tax cuts for high-income people, historically, most of that money gets saved. is not as stimulative. So I'm not as nervous. For people who think, hey, the Fed's already in a rate-rising environment, and now we're going to add a huge stimulus on top of it, so rates are about to fly off the handle. Um, I I think less. I I don't think that's as big of a risk. Mm. Austin Goolsby, back in December, you said that stagnant wages are one factor that could prevent the Federal Reserve from continuing to raise interest rates in 2018 and 2019. Do you still uh, concur with that based on the 2.6% number that we received today? Uh, well, the, the just to unpack slightly, it's not just the wages alone. It's my, my view has been the economy is growing solidly, but it's not growing as fast as what the, the most optimistic folks at the Fed think, so that we will continue to find they're more than glimmers of hope. We'll be growing, and they'll say, look, the jobs numbers are great, the wages are really high. But then over the course of the next two or three months, we'll get in data that revises that down, and then they'll say, well, maybe it's not as strong, so let's let's continue to wait for a few months. I might be wrong on that, but for sure, as I mentioned, if you look at the wages, that very high number last time, toned down a bit this time, and we'll have to see what it is next time. As I always say, if it doesn't go for three months, it's not a thing yet. Does uh, does President Trump deserve some credit for today's jobs report? Yeah, he probably deserves uh, some credit. I, now, I think I have credibility because I used to say it when I was in the job 
in the administration and they, the jobs numbers started to improve, 90-plus percent of what happens in the economy has nothing to do with Washington. And the private sector generates its own dynamic, and that's mostly what you want to look for. But, uh, but for sure, the administration uh, has uh, – they have definitely not done anything to disrupt the – is what's now the second longest boom in U.S. history, and they've t- they've taken some actions that do seem to have increased uh, confidence on the on the business side. I want to get your thoughts on banking regulation and Dodd Frank and changes to that legislation uh, based on what you know about what the administration would like to see. What are your thoughts? Well, as, as you might guess, I've always been a skeptic of the. Uh, of the argument that what the economy needs now is to go rip up the rules of the road that we established after the crisis. I am sympathetic to the view that small community banks um, were never intended to get wrapped into the regulatory web that we apply to the larger financial institutions. So that part of the deregulation uh, I, I basically agree with. I don't have a problem with. There are many aspects of these of these moves that make me nervous. You know, where they're where they're basically saying, let's just keep inching up the thresholds of when you get additional scrutiny, higher and higher. So you can be a bigger and bigger financial institution. And like I say, I guess my objection is to the <clears throat> philosophy. Yeah that what we need is more deregulation on the financial side. We know what happens when you start having asset bubbles or big asset price moves plus lots of leverage plus less oversight, and it's not a good combination. Austin, one final question. Uh, You enjoy at Booth School packed attendance. It's like Cubs. It's like Cubs Cardinals in July. For a class on platform industries, where you connect buyers, sellers, and third-party providers together, that glorious service sector, that modern digital service sector, are they affected by steel and aluminum tariffs? Uh, Aluminum, there there we have it. they're not not most they're not big users of uh steel for the, the internet companies and, and that sort of thing uh, the there's about six and a half million jobs in steel using industries you know there's a little over a hundred thousand jobs in the steel making industries mm-hmm. so that's why i and and economists on both sides view Raising the price of that input is not a good idea. Even if well, you're trying to do is save manufacturing jobs, you're actually wrecking okay. more of them than you're, than you're saving. Got to leave it there. Austin Goolsby, thank you so much. I, I kid folks. I mean, his classes are packed at Booth School uh, Chicago. Professor Goolsby, the former chairman, President's Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.